0: We can take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4, and we're continuing our verse-by-verse walk through the book of 1 John. And uh, this verse that we're coming to this morning is incredibly important. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. As you're turning there, I just want to ask you, if if someone were to ask you this, how would you define yourself? How would you define yourself? Just think about this for a moment. Uh, How would you define yourself? Uh, Maybe you would define yourself in terms of what is essentially you, it's actually an interesting exercise to try to do. What is the essential you? For example, I could say I am 6'1", right? I am 6 feet 1 inches tall. But that isn't actually an essential attribute, right? Because over time, I will eventually compress down. Uh, and I won't always be 6'1", or I could get in a car accident and not be 6'1 anymore, all sorts of things, right? In fact, all of my physical characteristics are not actually essential because everything physical about me can and will eventually change. And that's actually true about all relationships as well. I might say, well, I am am quintessentially a husband or a father or a pastor, and yet all of those things could change as well. And the same is true for all of you. So what is the essential you? And that brings us to internal realities, right? Things that are true about you on the inside. There are many ways that you could answer that, but I would actually tell you that all of those things that you think are the essential you could also change as well. In fact, there's literally nothing that is eternally constant about you except what comes to you from God. The thing that is eternally constant about you is what God has done for you. And that begs the question then, what is eternally constant about God? What is eternally constant about Him? What defines the essential God? And the answer is everything. Everything that God is, He is at all times. God does not change. The theologians call this the immutability of God. He doesn't mutate like we can, right? We can change, but God doesn't. Instead, God is constantly and always Himself in all of His fullness in every way. And what John brings up for us this morning in 1 John 4, 8 is a radically important nature about this God who doesn't change, about God's nature. And my goal this morning is to unpack some of the implications of that doctrine and then how, uh, think about how it applies to us. So just look there with me, and we'll read verses 7 and 8 together. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This brings us to point one this morning, God is love. God is. What's interesting is that the Bible is actually filled with statements about God's character. In fact, in some ways, the Bible is really just a self-disclosure of who God is. He's letting us know who He is in all of His fullness. It's written through history, and so it shows us what He does, but it also communicates to us who He is, not only what He does, but also who He is. And John uses a formula for us. The formula is God is. And you see it at the end of verse 8. He says, God is love. And what's happening here is, is John is seeking to highlight the nature of God, who He is, and how it applies to us as Christians, its impact on our lives. And John actually makes four of these statements in all of his writings. And I want to look at all four of them real quickly. The first three are under point A here spirit, light and righteous. Spirit, light and righteous. And we're just going to glance at these quickly, but turn with me to John chapter 4 verse 24. John chapter 4, turn back there with me to John's gospel. Now if you if you're familiar with the gospel of John, you know that chapter 4 is the story of the woman at the well. Jesus goes to Samaria and he meets a woman there. She's at a well and He has a conversation with her, and she gets saved. She comes to know Him as her Savior. And in verse 24, He says this. He says, God is spirit. Now, where does that come from? Why does He say that in verse 24? Well, look up in verse 23 with me. He says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship for the Father in spirit and in truth for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is telling this woman something essential about the nature of God. He tells her that worship isn't about which mountain you're standing on. Worship is about what's happening inside of you and the truth of what you know. So, spirit and truth define true worship because God is definitionally a spirit. And John is actually making an incredibly profound statement through Christ about the nature of God. It's a definitional statement about who He is. He is definitionally spirit. That's who He is. Now, what does it mean that He's a spirit? What does that mean? Well, He is invisible, right? God is invisible. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. None of us have. He's invisible and divine as opposed to us. We are human and we are therefore visible and non divine divine. But in his invisibility, he is life-giving and unknowable, right? He gives life, but he cannot be known unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. And so when John says God is spirit, it has profound implications for the person of God and all that He is. Of course, that can't be reversed, right? We can't say Spirit is God. All that is Spirit is God. That would actually be pantheism. Everything that has a Spirit is God. That that would be Hinduism. The opposite of that is true. God is Spirit. But what we can say is that because God is a Spirit and we are made in His image, what does that mean? We are Spirit as well. We also have Spirit because we are made in the image of God. And so, we have eternality that flows to us from Him. You will live forever. Your internal self is an eternal being, and you will live forever, either in eternal life or in eternal death. So, that's the first God is statement. The second is back in 1 John. Flip with me to 1 John chapter 1. Now, we've already walked through this text. It's the first half of the book of 1 John, and it's 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And we've walked through this passage, and we spent some time here because of how important it is. But if you look at verse 5 of chapter 1, John says this. He says, This is the message which we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If you remember back... Many weeks ago, we did a little survey of what God's light is in the Bible and in John's writings, and, and you probably don't remember this, but God's light is used for three different things in John's writing. The first is for life, that God gives life through light, and that's how He's producing life in His people. Second, it's for purity. God is light in the sense that there's no darkness in Him. He's completely a pure being. And third, light is used for glory. In the writings of John, that Jesus shines with the light of life and purity. His glory shines out of him. So, the nature of God, if God is light, the nature of God is filled with life, purity, and glory. And all of that is shining out of who God is in the spiritual world. And it's interesting, Jesus says, What about himself? I am the what? the light of the world. I am the radiance of God's glory, the shiningness of God's glory in life and purity. And John says, listen, this is so important, he says, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you. From who? From Jesus. Jesus told John that God is light, and he showed John that God is light through his life. And John's awareness of the living, pure, glorious reality that he has received in Christ is what he's communicating to you in the book of 1 John. Again, John doesn't want us to reverse this, right? We can't say, God is light, therefore light is God. No, that would make no sense whatsoever, right? Instead, it's a statement about God's being, who He is in His character. This is who He is essentially. And John... Interestingly, he suggests that this also has ramifications for us, right? Look at verse 6 with me. He says, God, in verse 5, he says, God is light. There's no darkness in Him. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. In other words, if you say that you know the God who is light and yet your life manifests darkness constantly, then you're not fellowshipping with God. You're not. It's impossible because this is His character. So we should have life and purity and glory shining out of our lives because we are now walking with the one who is light. So God is spirit and God is light. The third one is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. Look over there with me. First <clears throat> John chapter 2, verse 29. John says this, He says, if you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. That's the third statement, right? He is righteous. It's an independent statement. The, The purity of the nature of God in light manifests itself in righteousness. It's an essential characteristic of God. He is righteous, we covered this passage as well. Kevin preached through this text, and if you remember, he talked about how our knowledge of God and who He is in His righteousness produces in us a righteousness because we've been born of Him. And if you look at verse 29 again, notice what he says. He says, if you know that He is righteous, you know that, all, that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. So the implication for us is new birth causes us to practice righteousness, to be like God. So, God is spirit, and we are like Him in that. God is light, and we ought to reflect and walk in the light that is in Him. And then God is righteous, and we who are born again should reflect that righteousness. And that brings us to John's fourth God is statement, and this is point B, love. Now, I think those other three are in some ways expected, I think there's an expectation that God is spirit, that God is light, that God is righteous. Those are things that we would expect. But I think this one, that God is love, is not what we would expect. It might throw us off a little bit, especially people from our theological conviction. I think the reason why is because we've been programmed by our culture to think of love in the context of like romantic comedies. That's what love is. It's the, the chasing across the train station platform at the end of a movie Uh, with cheesy music playing in the background. Or, Or it's also something like maybe I love hamburgers, right? That's not love, right? That's just you expressing a preference. That's not what John is describing when he says God is love. Instead, John is defining an essential character trait of God, an essential thing that defines who He is. And we can't reverse that, we can't say, love is God, right? If we take those two ideas, God is love, and we reverse them, love is God, what do we get? We get what modern process theologians would want you to believe, right? That any love is God-like, but it isn't. God is love, and therefore what love is, is defined by God Himself. It's not defined by who we think or what we think love is, it's defined by Him. And what John is telling us here is something that is in some ways, I think, insane. It's so difficult for us to understand. God's very nature, who He is in His essence, His essential being, can be defined by love. By love. That's that's what theologians call an attribute of God. He is love. What does that mean? It means that everything that exists in the universe that reflects love in any way is actually emanating out of Him. All true love that exists between believers flows from Him. The love of a mother to her child, even among unbelievers, listen, is a reflection of His love. All of it is. Even, this is important, even the polluted romantic love that the music and movie industry wants to sell us all the time is actually just a reflection of the human heart's longing for who God is in His love. That's all it is. So the very nature of who God is, is defined as love. Now, of course, this could be very challenging to see, right? If I say God is love, what's the first question that might come into your mind? How can a God who is omnibenevolent, who loves everyone, how can a God who is love allow suffering? Or how could a God who is love send people to hell? We're going to answer these. But first, we need to see the fruit of this in our own understanding of God. And this is point two, attributes and simplicity. Attributes and simplicity. Now, I don't know if you were in attendance for Gus's equipping class uh, for God's attributes. If you were not in attendance for Gus's equipping class and God's attributes, I would encourage you to go to the YouTube page and download or look at or watch the video on God's simplicity. What is God's simplicity? Well, the simplicity of God, if you remember if you were there and if you weren't you can watch this, means that God is not like a pizza. What is that? God is not like a pizza. He's not slices. We can't carve God up into his attributes and say sometimes God is love and other times God is holy and other times God is just. That's not the way that God is. God is simple in the sense that He is all of His attributes at all times. In other words, when John says God is love, He is always love. Now, there's lots more to be said about that, and you should watch that hour-long video. And let me just take this as a moment to appeal to you to come to first-hour equipping class, okay? I get it. It's Sunday morning. You really only get one day off because Saturday is filled with honeydews but you should still get up and come to the nine o'clock equipping hour. Gus, this, uh, this second half of the year is teaching on hermeneutics. Even if you've had hermeneutics before and you've studied this topic, these are, these are truths that we need to know. I was in the class last week, and, and I was sitting there thinking, I, I so need to hear this again. It's so important. It's so good. And Stephen is teaching through the fundamentals of the faith, uh, and, which is kind of a misnomer, actually. It's not fundamentals at all. It's actually a 32-week run through systematic theology. So it's fantastic as well. So if, you, if you're not attending one of those classes, see one of these guys. Gus, raise your hand. Stephen, raise your hand. Very good. Come and see Stephen or Gus and start attending first hour. It's so helpful. Uh, that's for free. Okay, those resources are there to help you grow in your knowledge and love of God, and we just want to appeal to you that an extra hour of sleep is not worth not knowing that much about God. Okay, so back to the simplicity of God, right? God is not like a pizza. We can't carve Him up into His attributes. What does it mean? That means that God is always everything about His character at all times. There's never a time when God isn't love. All that God does is is loving because God is love. All of that fits together into one reality about who God is. So love is an attribute of God that defines all of his actions. But this is so important, okay? Listen to this, so important. God isn't love because he acts in love. God isn't love because he acts in love. God is love in his nature, And in His nature, because He is love, that causes Him to functionally act in love. The things that God does are loving because of who He is, and therefore He acts in love. We can't say, because God acts in this way, that defines Him backwards. No, God defines everything that He does by His nature. In fact, this is very evident in a lot of texts. Think about John 3.16 real quickly. You know this verse. What comes first, the act of God giving His Son or His love for the world? His love, right? For God so loved the world, what? What's the next word? That He gave. The action flows out of the character of God. Look at Ephesians 2 with me real quickly. I just want to show you this more clearly. Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 1 through 3, we're told that as unbelievers, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we're children of wrath, just as the rest of the world. But if you look at verse 4, look what he says. He says, but God, being, so this is his being, being rich in mercy, why? Why is his heart full of mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. So what's the order of operations here? The order of operations is first, love. Love produces mercy, and mercy causes God to make us alive together with Christ. This is so important. God's actions flow out of who He is. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but that's what God expects of you. That your actions flow out of who you are in Him. It's not enough to say, I do loving acts. That's not enough. It wouldn't be enough for God to say that. I saved them, but I hate them. That would not be righteous. It has to flow from who we are into how we act, because that's how God is. So the very nature of God is love. And God always acts according to His nature, which is a nature of love. So this brings us back around again to the question of suffering and hell. How can those come from a God who is love? And this is point three, God's self-love. God's self-love. Now, we need to be very cautious about how we define love, right? Love isn't just an altruistic willingness to say yes to whatever a person asks for. That isn't love. That's not love, in fact. We even understand this, right? As parents, if you have kids, you know that there are times when the very most loving thing you can do for your child is tell them what? No. (laughs) That's the most loving thing you can say. And you can even sometimes inflict pain on them for a better purpose, for love for them. Think about this for a minute. Imagine one of your children who only wants to eat Skittles for every meal. They just want Skittles. They love Skittles. They're their favorite candy, and they want a bowl of Skittles for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, is it loving to say yes to that child? It's not. That's not even hard. Obviously, it's not. What's going to happen to the child? Number one, they'll have no teeth. Number two, they'll shrivel away and die. So, if you just say yes, and it's always yes, 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 anything you want, yes, that's always right, yes, anything you say, yes, that's not love. And in fact, if your child, if you say no to your child, no, I'm sorry, honey, no bowl of Skittles this morning, instead you're going to have eggs and toast, and they throw themselves down on the ground and start crying, is it loving to then say, well, okay, here's your Skittles? No. What do you have to do? You have to help that child eat what is necessary because you love them. And that might even include a little suffering. When you correct that child so that that child eats the thing that he or she truly needs. So we can understand, I think, how a loving God can not only allow but even ordain suffering in the lives of his children to help them, to help us, right? In fact, he says in all of our suffering, what's he doing? He's conforming us into the image of his son. That's what he's doing. He's making us more like Christ through the pain that he brings into our lives. But what about hell? Can a loving God send people to hell? And the answer is that God loves in a God-like way. God loves in a God-like way. He does not love like an idolater. What do I mean by that? What is the first and greatest commandment that God gives? What is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength for God, he must obey that command to be righteous. He has to love himself with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because if he were to love anyone else besides himself, he would be idolatrous. There would be something higher than him. And if he were to love that higher thing than him, more than himself, then he would no longer be God. He would actually be sinful And so God loves himself. What does that mean? It means he loves his glory. He loves when he receives glory. And he loves his glory more than he loves anything else. And because he loves his glory more than anything else, he is obligated to do what is right according to his glory in every situation. He must do that. And this is where sin comes in, right? This is where sin enters. When any of us sins, and all of us have sinned, all of us have sinned and fallen short of His glory, when any of us sins, what happens? We sin not against other people or against ourselves primarily, we sin against Him. We sin against His glory first and foremost. So what has to happen when sin comes in against the glory of God? Well, that sin is evil, and that sin therefore must be punished. It must be. If God were to sweep a single sin under the rug and just forget that sin without actually dealing with the sin injustice, He would be unrighteous. That would cause God to sin. I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about your car in the parking lot right now. We have someone out there on security. I'm not sure who it is today, but they're standing outside in security. But imagine that someone came and they stole your car out of the parking lot today. They got in your car, they hotwired it, and they stole your car and drove off in it. And they took it and they sold it, and they took the money that they got for selling it, and, and they spent that money. And then the police find that person. The police find them. And they take them to court. And you're standing there in the plaintiff's bench and there in the defendant's bench and you say, he stole my car. And the man says, yes, I stole his car. I sold it. I took the money. I spent it. And the judge said, look, we'll give you a pass on this one. We'll just call this one one for fun. Not a problem. What would you say? You would say, (laughs) no, 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 that's not okay. Okay. It's not okay that you would say, it's okay for you to sin. We'll sweep this one under the rug. That's not okay. Something needs to be done. And you would be right to say that. But how much more God, right? How much more God? If that judge who swept away the theft of your car would be unrighteous, how much more God who we want to sweep away our sins when we violated his glory? He has to punish sin. He has to maintain righteousness and His glory. And why? Because that's who He is. He's perfect. And so He punishes sinners in hell, and it is right that He does that. So He loves His own glory. But He also does the unthinkable, right? He also does the unthinkable. In His love for humanity, what did Jesus do? God sent him into the world. He lived a perfect life. He earned heaven rightly. And then God put him on a cross and took the sins of his people and placed them on Christ and crushed him for their sins so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And what's more, he invites the whole world to come to him and receive that freely. Isaiah 45, he says, Come unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. That's what he's saying to the whole world. Yes, you've all sinned. All of you have sinned and fallen short of my glory. And what I have to do because I'm righteous is punish you. But what I am offering you is forgiveness that you do not deserve. And I will forgive all of your sins. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why? Because he loves And he does that for his glory as well, doesn't he? In fact, the highest form of his glory that we can possibly see is the forgiveness that he offers to unrighteous people like us. But what he knows is that no one will accept that offer. (laughs) Not a single person will ever accept that offer. If it's just freely stated, you can have your sins forgiven, no one will take it. Why? Because the sin nature runs in us so deeply that we won't. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, no one seeks after God, not one person. No one does. So what does God do? He chooses some and he opens their eyes to the glory of his mercy in Christ in the gospel and he saves them. He takes their sins and he places them on his son. And he gives them new life so that they're forgiven and they see the reality of who he is and they understand his love. And for those people, God has a special electing, saving love. They're his people. And he does that for his glory as well. So everything has to be done for him, for his glory. His general love for humanity, His justice in punishing sin, and His special saving love for His people, all of those are done for His glory, and all of them define His love. And so we can rightly say God is love and still maintain that a loving God can send people to hell rightly. So what does this have to do with you this morning and me what does this have to do with our daily lives? And this is point four, the essential quality of a Christian. Now, what's interesting, look back in 1 John 4, verse 8 with me. Notice what John does here. Notice the connection that he builds. He says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And we haven't even talked about the beginning part of this verse yet. And you think to yourself, Three words, God is love. We've been here for almost an hour. This is horrible. But the beginning of the verse actually tells us something about the essential nature of who you are when you know God. What happens to you? And we haven't covered this yet for a reason. John says the one who does not love does not know God. In other words, what? Knowledge of God, a regenerated heart, that true knowledge of who He is, That true regeneration produces in us a love that reflects the nature of God. And it isn't only a love for others, even though that's John's point in this verse. It's also a love for God. In fact, it's primarily a love for God and His glory, and second, a love for others. In fact, just look down with me at 1 John 4.10. It's so interesting. He's tying these two together inextricably, a love for God and a love for other people. In verse 10, he says, in this is love, generally, not that we loved God. So our love for people is actually an outflow of our love for God, and all of that is not in us. We need to see that knowing God, in knowing God, we begin the process of becoming like him. We begin to reflect his nature, and what is his nature? It's to love himself and to love others as well. there are a lot of places we could go with this, but I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 8 with me. Look over in Hebrews chapter 8. Chris read this for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 8 has the repetition of the new covenant. If you can look this up, you can read it in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is a repetition of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8. in chapter 8, verse 8, he talks about how he's going to create a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And we're not going to cover that verse. And then in verse 9, he says, it's not like the old covenant because they broke that old covenant. And we're not going to cover that verse. But look at verse 10 with me. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And what's he going to do? Look what he says. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. What does that mean? It means that God will take his law and he will cause it not just to be something that we read, but something that we know and feel. We know the law of God in our minds and our hearts love the law of God. In fact, what does the psalmist say in Psalm 119? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The love of God's law is what he will create in his people. And then what does he say? Look what he says in verse 10. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, what? There will be a relationship between God and the people of the new covenant that that we will belong to him and he will belong to us. Verse 11, they will not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying know the Lord. You don't need to say know the Lord to other believers. Why? What does he say? They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, they'll all know me. Now think about what John says in 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not what? Know God. And he says everyone who's a Christian knows God. So what will happen? Look at verse 12. How will they know? How will we know him? And he tells us, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Think backwards through these verses with me. He says, I'm going to forgive all their sins and I'm going to be merciful to them. I'll remember their sins no more. They'll be gone. And in that reality, what will happen? They will come to know me. They will know God. And in knowing God, what will happen? You don't have to teach anybody else because we all know God. Every one of us who knows God knows one another. We know him. And then he says what? I will put my law inside of them. And they'll obey it from the heart. They'll want to obey the law. And what is the law? What is the law? Jesus said, Matthew twenty-two forty, 40, it is to love God and love others. And he said, on these two depend all the law and the prophets. If you love God and you love others, everything else you'll do. And so what happens to a person whose sins are forgiven? They're born again, they know God, and now the law of God becomes the thing that they want to do. You don't have to tell them anymore, you should love. They say, I should love. I should love God. I should love other people because that's who God is and I know Him. And He's forgiven my sins. The law of love gets written on our hearts so that we love God and we love others. We don't do it perfectly. Why? Why can't you do that perfectly? Because you're still in your flesh. But man, you want to, don't you? You want to change. You want to love Him more. You want to love others more. Why? Because your heart knows that's who He is, and you know Him. And if that isn't happening at all, that's hugely problematic. That's what it means to know God, It's to have His law written on your heart. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to have the essential character of God stamped on you. So maybe you can see ways that God has changed you. Maybe you can see that, but you still struggle to love. So how do you grow in that? How do we grow in that? Well, think with me about the new covenant. What is the source of the law being written on our hearts? It's the reality that God has forgiven our sins, right? How do you grow in your love for God and others? by knowing just how much he loves you and by the forgiveness that he's offered you in Christ. The more we see the love of Jesus for us in forgiving our sins, the more you and I will reflect his nature of love. The more you know yourself loved, the more you will love. That's how it works. And in fact, listen, this is important. That is the most pleasing thing to God that there is. Listen to John Owen here. I don't know if you know John Owen. He's a famous Puritan. He wrote the book Mortification of Sin. He's very serious. This isn't loosey-goosey, right? It's John Owen. Listen to what he says. He says, "...men are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think that it is a boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving." Boldness there means, like, effrontery. It's insulting to him. "...I speak of saints." they can judge him hard, austere, severe, almost implacable, and fierce, the very f- worst affections of the very worst of men, and most hated by God. Is not this soul deceit from Satan? Was it not his design from the beginning to inject such thoughts of God? Assure yourself, then, there is nothing more acceptable to the Father than for us to keep our hearts unto him as the eternal fountain, of all that rich grace which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. That's a stunning statement. The more we know of God and His gracious love toward us, the more we please Him, and the more powerfully we begin to reflect His nature in love for His glory. So, we started with what is essential about you. (laughs) If you're a Christian... The one essential thing that's true about you is that God is making you like Him. That's what He's doing. And He is doing it in love for you so that your essential nature begins to love. I need to finish here by saying, if you look at your life and you say, I I actually don't love God, and I don't love other people. I can fake it. I I can put on a good show at church, but I don't actually love God. I don't know him. I I don't actually experience him. Then I would just appeal to you. Do you know him at all? It isn't something to be ashamed about. It's something to really consider. Don't hide that. Consider this. Do you truly know him? Because knowing him means knowing his love, which causes you to love him, which causes you to love other people. So just, if you find yourself in that place this morning, I would just appeal to you to consider that. Perhaps you don't truly know God. Perhaps you're not truly saved, and and you maybe have all the right answers theologically, and maybe you've done all the right things on the outside, but your soul doesn't know and love God. If you're in that place, don't leave today without talking to somebody about that. Don't leave without coming to know Him Because in knowing him, he changes us into his image. And if you're here and you do know him and you say, I have loved him, I'm just cold right now, I feel distant from him. I've sinned and I know the guilt in my heart and so I feel like God is far from me. My appeal to you would be the way you know him better is by receiving forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? That God in his wisdom has designed it so that it's not on you. Except to say, he really does love me and he really does forgive me. So I hope and pray that you'll trust that reality of who he is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how it points us to the loving nature that you have for your people. Lord, we confess it's easy for us to doubt that you would love us. Lord, we know our own sins, we know our failings. Lord, we know all the ways that we have not loved you and loved others the way that we should. But Lord, we also know that you have sent your Son into the world to be a sacrifice for sin. Lord, that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that you forgive our iniquities and our sins you remember no more. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust that reality, that Jesus died for our sins and in trusting Him, Lord, that you would move in us that you would cause us to believe the love that you have for us so that, Lord, we would continue to grow in our obedience to your law. Lord, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in greater ways because of the love that you have for us. And Lord, that we would love one another, and that we would love others in greater and greater ways because we have received your love in such profound ways. Lord, we thank you that this is who you are, Lord, I pray that you would help us to worship you rightly because of your nature. Lord, we thank you for your self-revelation, and we pray that you would be glorified in our hearts as we trust you. We pray these things in Christ's most precious name. Amen.